0: Well, we're here. We're here at the end of the year. Christmas has come, and it is gone. The new year hovers right beyond the horizon, and we are here. And I just need to ask, um, earlier, Laurel um, got a a cheer from people who were excited about the snowfall. Raise your hand if you were one of those people cheering about the snow. Just on behalf of the rest of us, I'd like to say, boo! (laughs) No, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. It's a... It is a great weekend, right? I mean, this afternoon, the Seahawks are playing for home field advantage throughout. If that doesn't get your, your, your prayer life in gear, I don't know what will. That's a great thing. We got New Year's coming with a slate full of college football games that are going to be outstanding, and then a college football playoff after that. It just doesn't get any better. I'm really excited, but I'm getting a little bit off to the side here. I hope that your Christmas was spectacular. I hope that it was one of the best ever. I know for me, I would say my Christmas was really, really good. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It started early. This year, I got permission to put the Christmas lights up early while it was warm. I was very proud of that. I felt like things were off to a great start. And we did our, like, you know, the family Christmas letter that you write and let everyone know what's going on in your life. That got done. That got mailed out. And then Christmas Day itself was awesome. Um, I was really excited to give a few gifts uh, to, uh, to folks, and some of those were really well received. And then I was also really deeply blessed and touched by some of the gifts that were given to me as well. And so it was a great Christmas, and I was really excited until it happened. That thing that always seems to happen when things are going really, really well, I started comparing. Does it ever happen to you, like things are going great, and then you start looking around and comparing, and then they don't look so great? Like I finished my lights, Christmas lights, I was really excited. And then once the other neighbors started putting theirs on... But man, their lights are really cool. My lights stink. I'm a loser. I'm like the low man in the neighborhood. That's horrible. And I'd gone in, in just a matter of days from feeling like really on top of my game to being down in the dung heap where Christmas lights are concerned. And then I thought my Christmas letter was pretty cool until I started reading all the other Christmas letters. I didn't know that many people could graduate that highly in their class. I didn't, I didn't know that many people could have such a great time during their year. And I started getting depressed about my year, which up until that point had been really good. I just started comparing it with the years other people appeared to be having in their Christmas letter, and mine wasn't so good anymore. And then, like with the gifts, did you ever do this as a kid? Like, wait till your parents weren't looking, or at least you didn't think they were looking, and you kind of sneak in up to the Christmas tree, kind of like the Grinch sliding around, and start counting out the number of gifts that are yours compared to the number of gifts that belong to somebody else to see how it all measures out and weighs out? Or did you ever like, think, oh, this is the gift I'm giving to someone? They're going to love this one. But when they responded to someone else's gift, it seemed like they liked it more. It's possible to go from being so excited to give a gift and really bless someone to just being really depressed because they liked something else better. That's what comparisons do. They kill us. They wipe us out. And, and sadly, in some ways, this, I found it affecting my whole Christmas experience, which is really tragic. Because what is Christmas? It's this incredible reality that, we're, that we celebrate, right? Of God himself taking on human flesh in the form of an infant coming to inhabit, inhabit this creation of his so that he could show us who God is and what he's like and what his love looks like and feels like intangible, practical expression of a real person. It's this dynamic bedrock kind of foundation piece. It's so powerful. And it should never change. It should never be diminished and yet I found it being diminished because the neighbors had better lights up than I did. That's pretty weak on my part, I think. Christmas is about Emmanuel, God with us. Nothing ought to diminish that, right? But because of a mindset of comparison, I found on more than one occasion that's starting to be diminished. And so here we sit at the transition from one year to the next, and that's a time where we are particularly vulnerable to this death by comparison, right? Because it's the end of the year. And like we do at the end of every year, we start kind of reflecting back and seeing what happened this year and taking stock of the year that was. And while we're thinking about that, there's a part of us that's comparing how, how is everybody else? How did their year go? And part of where we are in the calendar too is looking forward in the year that's to come into 2015. And for some of us, the prospects for 2015 look great. And for others of us, They don't look so good. But all of us tend to, while we're looking ahead at how it looks for us, to compare maybe how our chances look compared to somebody else. We're reflecting back and we're looking forward along with everyone else. And it might be the transition into a new year that triggers it. But the temptation to live by comparing ourselves with others, it's not just a new year's phenomenon. It's not just an end-of-year phenomenon. It's there all year long. It's one of the traps that the enemy of our soul has so craftily laid for us to get us to live a life of comparison, comparing ourselves to others. Comparing my job to their job, right? To see how fulfilling is this job I do day in and day out, and maybe how fulfilling is it to somebody else. Just to compare maybe how much I earn to what somebody else might earn. Or maybe it's not about money or job, maybe for you the temptation comes in the area of your appearance, right? Trying to see how good you look compared to how good somebody else might look you know, comparing your waistline to their waistline, your hairline to their hairline. You can see I've got some familiarity with this. Maybe Maybe it's just that bit about comparing the family vacation that you got to take this year against the family vacation that someone you know got to take, right? Maybe Walla Walla was a great vacation, but when you heard about their trip to Hawaii, you said that's not fair. Maybe it's the nature of your family relationships. Maybe your family relationships don't seem as all together as their family relationships, whoever they may be. Maybe you feel like you want to compare the amount of talent and giftedness that God has given you, and there are others who seem to have just more and better. And there's a comparison there with kind of the gifts and the talents that we have. We'll compare everything. I find myself comparing my dog to theirs. Their dog is so smart. Their dog is so obedient. Their dog poops in all the right places. My dog's just dumb and poops anywhere she wants. <laughs> we're just prone to comparison, and it leads to the if-only syndrome, right? My life isn't what, it wa- what I want it to be. There's a way that my life should be, and I'm not there. And the only thing standing between where I am and where my life is supposed to be is this o- if-only. If only my dog were smarter. If only my vacations were better. If only my job was more fulfilling uh, and, and paid better if only my family had it all together if only my wife understood me more if only my classes were easier if only the professor graded on a curve if only if only if only and that's what's standing in the way that's where comparisons take us and one of the problems with comparing ourselves is that comparison always has some very very predictable results and none of them are any good and the first of those predictable results is this it's the comparison can result in pride, right? When you compare yourself, your situation, to the self and situation of someone else, and you decide, oh, I compare favorably. In this comparison, I come out on top. What's the most natural thing that we do? Well, I I come out on top of that comparison. That must be because I'm wonderful. Or that must be because of some hard work that I've done. Or because of some effort that I've put forward that way. And we become proud that way. And the Bible's clear on an awful lot of things, and one of the things that the Bible is really clear on is this. God doesn't like pride. God opposes pride. God is actually on the other team from people who are proud. When, when you and I, for whatever reason, think that we're something, because we've accomplished something, because we've had some success, because in some way that when we compare ourselves with others, we come out on top, when that happens and we become proud about who we are and what we've accomplished, It's like saying, look, there's God's team and there's the other team, and I choose the other. I don't even know, um, I'm not sure what it means to be on God's team, but I'm choosing pride over that. That's what it says. Here's how the prophet Isaiah put it. He said this, that the arrogance of man will be brought low, and human pride humbled, and that the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. See, over time, that's what what God does with pride. He he allows it to work its work, and it brings about uh, destruction. Uh, Peter wrote uh, something similar uh, centuries later. He wrote this. He said, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. When we allow ourselves to become proud about, let's be honest, a lot of things that really aren't our own doing anyway, that when that, that pride, that sense of, look, I'm better because I compare favorably with somebody else, when we allow that to take place, we place ourselves on the opposite team from God. God is going to oppose us even in the midst of our pride. Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 18. And he talked about um, two men who went up to the temple to pray. And there was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector, right? The Pharisee was the religious leader, very well respected, followed all the rules, everyone looked up to them, right, very holy, very righteous, let all the righteousness show on the outside. And Jesus said that when the, when the Pharisee went up to the temple to pray, he began his prayer with these words. And it was a very fancy prayer, and it sounded a lot like King James English, and it was very formal. But he essentially started like this. God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. Thank you that you've not made me like him. Thank you that you've made me obedient to you in all your ways. Thank you that you've empowered me to live my life the way you want me to. Thank you that I'm not like him. Jesus said, the tax collector, on the other hand, who was the lowest of the low in society, he was typically a criminal, a cheater, and a traitor to the nation, uh, right? And so he's over there, and Jesus said that the tax collector came, and he wouldn't even actually go into where you're supposed to pray because he didn't feel qualified. He didn't feel like he measured up. He was too ashamed of his brokenness. And he just stood on the outside and said, God, I have nothing to offer you. I'm a sinner, and I'm broken, and I beg you for mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus asked the question, of those two men... Who do you think went home that day right in the sight of God? And the answer is pretty clear, right? It's it's the tax collector. It's the worst of the worst sinners who at least acknowledged his sin and said in great humility and with an absence of any pretense or pride, said, God, please forgive me. That's the one who went home in right relationship with God. While the very righteous, the very upright, the very proud Pharisee did not go home justified. There's power in that story, and every time I read it, I find myself saying, "God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee over there." <laughs> Don't we? Do, isn't that how it is? Don't we just? We there's something in us that leaps to a comparison, and particularly towards a comparison where I can look favorable uh, in its light. So sometimes when we compare favorably, we're prone to pride, and that's a bad place to be because God opposes that. But other times, when we compare, when we fall into that trap, and when we do comparisons, we find ourselves on the short end of that comparison, right? Where it's like, man, when I, when I look at who they are, when I look at what they have, when I look at how things are going for them, I just feel small. I feel insignificant. I feel down in the dumps. And in that case, comparison doesn't result in envy, or doesn't result in pride. It does result in envy it results in that kind of jealous sense of, I want what they have. I want the circumstances that God has given to them. I'm not content with what God has given me. I want what he's seen fit for them. And it leads us to the if-onlys. If only I had what they had. If only I were given the opportunities that they were given. If only I had the chances that they had, then everything would be okay. Have you ever felt that way? Most people I talk to feel that way quite, quite often. And here's the thing. That mindset... Of looking at where other people are and what other people have and how other people are doing is something that is expressly forbidden by God he says don't do that don't let your mind go there don't let that be the framework that shapes your thinking in Exodus chapter 20 if you're familiar with Exodus chapter 20 that's where we get the Ten Commandments and here in the list of Ten Commandments it says this you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey. And in case it's unclear, he summarizes, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There's nothing that belongs to anyone around you that you look at and you say, oh, I should have that. I be- that should belong to me. I want that. God specifically says, don't do it. In fact, God looked over the whole expanse of the possibilities of human experience and said, look, I'm going to give these, I'm going to boil it all down to 10 things that are most important, right? The 10 commandments. I'm going to summarize it all in these 10. So out of all the things he could have said, he chose 10 things to say and envy made the list. Coveting, desiring what somebody else has. It was that important to God because he knows how dangerous that sense of envy is, that coveting of wanting what they had. It was that big a deal for him. And so he forbid it. Now, those who will tell you, well, you shouldn't be envious of others and you shouldn't covet what others have um, because that will create a mindset which is emotionally unhealthy for yourself and will hurt your self-esteem, and over time it will be bad for you. And those things are true. But God didn't say, hey, you shouldn't do this because it will be emotionally difficult for you. He said, don't do it because it's wrong. He said, don't do that because it dishonors me. I am the God who has provided for you everything in your life you have and any level of discontent you have with what I have provided is an inherent discontent with me so with that in mind do not covet what others have do not long after the things that I have seen fit to place in their hands because when you do that you demonstrate that you disregard my provision in your life and it's not just that it's forbidden it can, it can be dangerous too. I'm, I'm, I was thinking this uh, last week, there's a story, I think it came out of Cincinnati, but a couple of, there was a, a store that had a, a brand new shipment of some limited release uh, basketball sneakers, right, that were, uh, everybody wanted them, there's obviously more people that wanted them than shoes that were available, so everyone had kind of lined up outside the store waiting for the release of these special high tops, and there were a couple of guys who came in wanted to get the shoes but they were late to the party and by the time they got there the store was all sold out and so they looked around at people who had the the shopping bags from the store in question and they knew that those people have what I came here to get and what I desperately want but which is unavailable to me they coveted those and in this particular case these two young men walked up to the men with a bag and and drew weapons from from their pockets guns to them and said we want your shoes And the the guy in question said, well, I happen to have some shoes here, and I happen to have a bigger gun here. (laughs) And he turned it on, and he shot them. And and the lives of young people, full of potential, full of hope, full of a future, were drawn to a tragic and immediate close because that impulse for envy, that impulse to have what somebody else already possessed, that discontent with what God had seen foot to, fit to put in their life, and the desire to reach out and grab what somebody else already had overcame them and put them in a dangerous circumstance. It's tragic. It's painful. And envy is inherently destructive. The writer to the Proverbs put it like this, and I love it. I really do. He said, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Isn't that a great picture? I mean, so a heart at peace gives life to... A heart at peace, that's a heart that says, so here's my life. There are parts of it that I really like. Maybe there's some parts of my life that are difficult. Maybe there's some parts of my life that I would change if I could. But I am at peace with my life, not because it's perfect, but because I trust the God who's given it to me. And a heart that is at peace like that gives life to the body. There's a vibrancy, there's a joy, there's an ability to keep going, there's a confidence and a hope and a life to that. But envy is the exact opposite of that. It rots the bones like a cancer. Envy eats away at everything that is good. It eats away at everything that is healthy and strong and vibrant and, needs, and leaves nothing but destruction and pain and death. Here's the thing. Envy isn't something that happens to us, right? We're not victims of envy. Envy is something that you and I choose to participate in. When we see something that we don't yet have, when we observe somebody else enjoying something that we wish that we could be enjoying, we have a choice to make. And one choice is to say, I'm just going to let my flesh go, and I'm going to continue to mull and to think and to focus on how badly I want that. And that is a choice to participate in envy. Or we make the choice to say, no, I'm going to allow the word of God to reshape my thinking, and I'm not going there. We have a choice to make where envy is concerned, right? If we didn't have a choice, there wouldn't be a commandment about it. But the reason God says don't envy is because we possess the ability not to. It's a choice that we make. So how do we make that choice? How do we, how do we step away from the trap of comparison? Whether it's the trap of comparison that leads us towards pride on the one hand, or whether it's the trap of comparison that leads us towards envy and covetousness on the other, how do we step away from that trap? What can we do practically to see that we don't fall prey to it? Well, the first thing we can learn to do is this, and that's to embrace contentment as a lifestyle. We need to l- learn to embrace contentment as a lifestyle. And by that I mean contentment isn't just an item-by-item thing. I'm content about my car, I'm content about my dinner, I'm content about my driveway, I'm content about my church, and item by item, making sure that we're content about each thing. No, I'm talking about embracing a whole lifestyle that says, as a whole, I trust God to bring into my life those things that please Him and serve His purposes, and I choose to be content with them. You see, contentment, it requires a thankful heart, doesn't it? If we're going to be content... We have to learn the fine art of thankfulness that way. And so I just want to suggest that maybe one practical step is this. When you find yourself comparing and when you discern in yourself that envy is kicking into gear, when you find your heart just reaching out and desiring to have what others have, when when you feel that sense of envy and jealousy and covetousness kicking up, learn to allow that to become a trigger for something else form in your mind and your heart an automatic connection between I'm beginning to envy and so I'm going to choose to be thankful. So as you're driving down the road and that brand new Lexus with the Christmas bow still on top of it is driving down the street, take that that envy that rises up, right? And let that be a trigger and a reminder to say, Lord, thank you for my broken down Honda Odyssey van with almost 200,000 miles on it. Because it runs. Because it gets me from here to there. God, thank you for my 10 speed. (laughs) Or God, thank you for my bus pass. Or God, thank you for the use of my legs and my feet and the ability to walk. Or whatever it may be. But at those points when we find ourselves reaching out towards envy, allow that to be a trigger that reminds us, man, I'm, I'm feeling envy. I need to get to business with some thankfulness. I need to identify those places in my life where I see what God has provided and thank him for that. There's something else that we need to know as well, and that's this, that contentment requires just a very courageous trust in God. Right? When when the circumstances of my life aren't everything that I wish that they were, but I know that God's responsible for them, I have to trust that he's got a good plan in mind, even if I don't understand it. So, when, when the discontent rises up and the envy for somebody else's life or circumstances finds its way in, in addition to being a trigger towards, towards thankfulness, it needs to be a trigger towards trust and saying, God, I am I'm choosing to trust you. And, and God, I, maybe in my, in my mind or my heart, I wish things were another way, but I choose to, to trust you with the plan that you have for my life. And that's hard to do. In fact, it's so hard to do That it requires divine, God-given strength to do that. We don't, as just mere human beings, possess the strength just to wrench our minds out of uh, envy and covetousness and discontent and force them over into thankful trust. But God will give us the strength that we need. Here's how the Apostle Paul described it. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Plenty. Paul knew both sides of that equation. He'd he'd had times of flourishing and he'd had times of real struggling financially as well. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And he says, but I have learned the secret of of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or whether living in want. He says, I know the secret to being content. And then he shares the secret with us. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You want to learn how to be content, whether you're in plenty or whether you're in want? You want to learn how to have the strength to be both thankful and trusting of God when when things are difficult and you don't seem to compare so favorably with everything that you see around you? And see, when we have those feelings, it's got to be a trigger to thankfulness. It's got to be a trigger to trust. And then it's also going to be a trigger to prayer that says, God, I need your strength to reshape my mind and see things differently. To pray, God, would you give me today this strength that you gave Paul to say, I have discovered the secret of being content. And it's by living in the strength of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, and I find, I find this is really important, that contentment needs to be paired together with godliness contentment needs to be paired together with godliness. Paul wrote it this way, but godliness with contentment is great gain. See, we do need to become more contented. We do need to trust that God's plan is right. We do need to trust that he's provided for us exactly what he wants us to have. And we do need to learn to be content with that. We need God's strength for that, to be sure. But Paul says to to Timothy, it's not just that. In addition to a mindset of contentment, there's also a, a living it out, right, with godliness. And, and godliness is kind of a big word. All it really means is doing what God says, living the way he instructs, and following his rules. So there's a mindset that says, God, I'm going to trust you with what you've placed in my hand, and I'm giving myself to you in the way that I live my life. And when we do that, when we combine a life of obedient yes to God with a life of contentment with the things that he's placed in life, Well, Paul says there is great gain in that. There's progress towards knowing God better, towards resting in his peace, towards being the person and the people that he has called us to be. Ultimately, I think um, we do need to understand this, that if we're going to be content, if we're going to fight off the trap of comparison, if we're going to fight off the envy that can result from that or the pride on the other side, that, that in order to do that, we must Find our identity in Jesus. Until we realize that I am defined by who Jesus says I am, until we decide that my identity is going to be tied up in who Jesus is, until that happens, we'll never truly be content. Right? The things that tend to help us make make us feel content, a little extra money in the account, a little insulation from life's woes, some good health, right, some good friends and family. When, when things seem to be going well, it's easy to be content. But don't we all know, those things don't always last. And those things are subject to dynamic and sudden reverses and changes. We want to build a sense of our identity on something that will not change, that will not go away, that doesn't rise and fall with the stock market or the, or the rise of the fall of nations globally, or anything like that. We want to build an identity on something so firm, so solid, so unchanging, that come what may, it will always be there. We can be content when our identity is tied up in that. Here's how Paul wrote it to the church in Galatia. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I will tell you this. If we so fashion our life after following God that we can say in all honesty, along with Paul, it's no longer this life that I'm living, but I live my life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. That's who I am. That's at the core of my identity. And come what may, in health, in finances, in family, and in the future, come what may, that remains solid, immutable, unchangeable. There is a contentment that lies in that that cannot be found anywhere else. See, here's the thing. Jesus at the center of my life, at the center of my identity, like Paul described there, when Jesus occupies that center place and is the heart and soul of who I am, that works really well. And it produces that the kind of contentment and the kind of peace, and along with godliness, produces that great gain that Paul was talking about. You, you know what doesn't work as well? Jesus is kind of an add-on on the outside of my life. Like ultimately, my identity is a doctor or a lawyer or a husband or a father or an addict or someone with an illness or a disability or whatever it may, whatever you find it whatever you have at the center of our identity if if Jesus is just kind of an attachment to that kind of an add-on module that makes whatever I am just a little bit better it's not going to work what works is Jesus dwelling inside of me changing who I am to conform with who he says that I am and when Christ dwells at the center transformation takes place when Christ dwells at the center there is a contentment there is a joy and there is a strength so moving into this next year i want to challenge you i want to challenge you maybe even this week to ask some of those tough questions about who am i and how do i relate to this person called jesus have have i been content to bring him alongside this life that i'm already living Or am I willing to step up to an amazing challenge to bring Jesus in to form the very center of who I am so that whether I am in a season of plenty or I'm a season of want, whether I am in a season of great health or deep sickness, whether my marriage is as good as it's ever been or my marriage has hit the low point, isn't on the verge of breaking or maybe already has, that in all things the center remains Settled, firm, strong, reliable. Will this be a year in which you find Jesus at the center, allowing you to flee from the trap of comparison and the envy and the pride that it can produce? Let's pray. God, the stuff we're talking about is difficult stuff to live out. And it begins maybe with an understanding of in our mind, but God, it needs to penetrate deep into our hearts. And so, Lord, that's what I'm praying in this moment for all of us. As one year winds down and as as we look into the beginning of another one, God, would you take these truths in your word and these ideas and the promise of a Savior and a Redeemer. And God, would you push them in far deeper than our understanding into that place in our heart that forms our identity, Would you, God, set us free from the tyranny of comparison? And God, for those of us who have struggled with either the envy or the pride that have resulted from constantly comparing ourselves with others, God, I just want to pray that in this moment you would would break those chains and you would release the stranglehold and set us free from that and launch us into a season of trusting you and being content with the life you're calling us to lead. In Jesus' name, amen.